Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, kids, you can meet at the back of the sanctuary. We'll dismiss you up to kids' ministry. And uh, church, I would invite you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, picking up actually where we left off last week. Uh, we're going to be in verse 11. So uh, Philippians 4 is where we will be. This May we are exploring three unique threats to spiritual and emotional health. So we are looking at this idea of vulnerable souls. Why would we do this? Why would we look at threats to our spiritual and our emotional health? Well, the reality is, is we are in a circumstance now in our society, in our culture, both as a result of COVID, but also as a kind of result of the general direction that things have been going. Loneliness is increasing. Anxiety is increasing. There are increasing reports of depression and mental health issues and mental health medication. And all of this stuff is happening all at the same time. And there is a call on the church in the midst of this situation to continue being the church, to continue reflecting Jesus. And our name on the sign says renovation, right? It says something about how we believe that the beginning of health and wholeness starts with Jesus, right? That we could, uh, if we actually believe that, that we could actually display something to the world around us about the health and wholeness that life and relationship with Jesus brings. And so what we're doing is we're exploring these unique places where our souls are particularly vulnerable. Last week we looked at anxiety. We had the opportunity to explore how the Lord wants to meet us in our anxiety. This week, the spiritual threat that we are discussing is discontentment. Now, the temptation for today is to listen to what I say and think, you know, this is a message that I know somebody who could really use this message, right? Like, this is a message that somebody else needs. Um, and the reality is, is that I'm just here to prepare you personally for the conviction of the Holy Spirit that will come upon you. Now, I'm not saying that because I know something about you. I'm saying that because I've been spending the last week preparing this message and have had to experience the Holy Spirit convicting me personally as I have been walking through this, right? So I'm just sharing with you to prepare you for what you're about to experience. So the spiritual threat that we're discussing is discontentment, and I just wanna give you a working definition Discontentment is a restless desire for more than what God has for you right now. A restless desire for what, more than what God has for you right now. I promise you that there's not one of us in this room who is above fighting this battle. Right? Anyone in this room, have you, anybody ever thought, you know, the grass is probably greener on the other side, right? Like is somewhere else? Right? There's somewhere, somewhere else that doesn't have the problems that I have to experience. There's some other circumstance that doesn't have the problems I have to experience. Anyone ever felt like, you know, I really deserve better than what I'm getting in this situation? Right? I'm entitled to something more? Like, so this is how I know that every one of us in this room is not above fighting this battle. Because we live in the United States of America. Right? We live in the most prosperous nation, in the most prosperous time, in the majority of all history, 
right? You, like, you live, I don't know if you know this, but if you live, even the poorest among us live better than kings used to live, like in the 1,000, 1,200, like the options we have available to us, right? We live better than kings used to live. We live in a highly commercialized, highly consumer-driven reality, right? Now, don't hear me up here bashing the United States, right? I love the United States. I love the opportunity. There's amazing opportunity available to us. There is amazing kind of uh, chances to be able to uh, not only receive, but to give to others. Like the, the reality of our economic circumstances has enabled other people's economic circumstances to grow, but I'm just looking at this reality that we live in this place where everything is accessible to us. And everyone is constantly hearing a message about how they need more or how they need something better or how they need something different, right? America is the land of opportunity, right? But the more opportunities you believe you have, the lower the chances that you are going to be satisfied with what you have right now, right? So, uh, I want to talk about millennials. Now, the reason I can talk about millennials is because I am a millennial. If you hear me up here and I start talking about boomers, you probably need to take me aside and say, Pastor Alex, you need, to, you need to take it easy a little bit. But that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to talk about millennials. Often in the past, we millennials have been referred to as entitled. Right? That is, that is the, the word that has been used to describe us. For what it's worth, entitlement is adjacent to discontent. So... Um, so what was the key formative message that we millennials heard? You can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. You can have anything you want. This is like we were told this time and time again. This is one of the most formative messages that I have from a period of time when I grew up. This is another way of saying to us, hey, you know what? Your opportunities are endless. So guess who? When they entered the workforce, found themselves extremely discontent with the situation. Us entitled millennials, right? Because we were told you can do and have anything you want. So the reality is, though, that entitlement, whatever it was that we experienced, that's just an extension of the American culture that we live in. So go with me. If anything is possible, then there's always something better than right now. If anything is possible, then there is always something better than right now. So this is how I know that if you are listening to me this morning, that you are not above fighting this battle because you live in this place where in front of your face constantly, you are hearing the message, anything you want is possible. Your soul, as a result, is vulnerable to discontent. And it's that vulnerability that I am here to equip us for this morning. So I have a question for you. If you could change anything about your life, what would it be? Right? Most discontent, for what it's worth, I think it falls into one of five buckets. So whatever that thing is that you would write down would probably end up in one of these five buckets. Right? You want more wealth, more influence, better relationships, a better career, a better body, right? Like these are just like wholesale. 
the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people and what they have, and our discontent can end up in one of these five categories. Now, what's fascinating about each of these five buckets is that like, we only have control over one part of the circumstances of each of these. Right? So it's worth saying that we do have a level of control. Right? We have a degree of the ability to do something about each of these things, but the reality is, is there are other people who also, like the part that they play, especially, like think about relationships. If you want better relationships, well, you know how many people it takes to have a relationship? It takes two people. Right? So you can only do what you can do. So there's this reality where you are reliant on other people to also be involved in developing better circumstances for you. But then there's like a third person who is responsible for every circumstance ever, and that is God, right? So you have control over your circumstances, but you only have a degree of control. And then other people, like, you know, if our boss gives us a raise, like, in order to get that raise, we need our boss to give us a raise if we want more money. If people never agree to our leadership, like, we need other people to agree to our leadership if we want more influence, Right, so there's us, we have control, there's others that have control, but then God has control too. So even if I am working in tandem with someone else to create a better circumstance for myself, God, in his sovereignty, may see fit not to give me that thing right now. And so let's come back to our definition. Our definition is a, discont- or, sorry, a restless desire for more than what God has for you right now. So before we move into our passage, I want to invite us to take a heart inventory. I'm going to ask you a few questions. Can I see someone else have the thing that my heart longs for and rejoice for them? Does God want me to have this thing right now? Whatever the answer is, then ask this question, why don't I have that thing right now? And here's the real kicker. Can I truly be satisfied with God if I never get that thing? Right, if we find ourselves in discontent, right? as you took that inventory, you may have said, well, I guess I'm discontent. Right? Like, uh, God doesn't want us to stay there. He is extending invitation to us into contentment. So what is contentment? Let's look at it. Contentment is a deep satisfaction in God no matter what you have right now. So that being said, I just want to sit with this and I want to invite the Lord to meet us and bring contentment. Would you pray with me, please? Holy Spirit, would you give our restless hearts rest in you? Would you give our dissatisfied hearts satisfaction in you? Lord, you are the one for whom our hearts were made. At the beginning of satisfaction is found in you. So teach our hearts these lessons. God, would you teach us the secret of contentment that is offered by Jesus Christ.
pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 4.11. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So just to give you some context for why Paul is saying what he is saying, what happened is the Philippian church, uh, they took an offering for Paul, specifically for him. They wanted to remember him, to support his ministry, to let him know that they were behind him. So what they did is they took this offering and they delivered it to Paul. And so what Paul is doing is he is now responding to their offering, to their remembrance of him, to the support that they are providing. And he is responding to them for two reasons. What he has to write, this response that he gives is for two reasons. The first is that he wants to provide them a teaching opportunity. Right, so... so. Um, What he is going to do is he is going to use himself as a holy example of what they are to emulate. Paul does this often. This, for what it's worth, is very foreign to us, this kind of concept. Culturally, this is kind of taboo. It's it's like we view people who lift themselves up as the example and say, follow me. We actually have a view of that that says you're conceited or you're thinking too highly of yourself, right? And so uh, if you ever see me up here saying, here is my example, emulate me, right? Culturally, you might call that into question just for, for what it's worth. But in Paul's culture, that is not the case. It is good for a leader to lift himself up as the example and to say these are things to emulate. And there is not this nature of viewing that with conceit or viewing that with the sense that they are puffing themselves up when they do that. So I just want want to clarify that. But he is using himself as an example to teach them something. Right? So he's thankful for the gift that they gave. He expresses his thankfulness. But there is a lesson here for them about what Christ can teach their souls, right? So, so what he has been doing is he's been spending basically half the letter of Philippians, half of the entire letter. He has been talking about his personal experience of being shaped by Christ, about how uh, he spent his whole life investing in all of this Jewish tradition, that he had this massive spiritual resume that exceeded almost anybody's spiritual resume, and that he basically considers it trash if he gets Jesus, That's been his whole concept all the way through. And so he's taking this and he wants to teach them something about what it means to find Christ in the middle and above everything. But then the second reason that he writes to them is because there are people who are constantly seeking to discredit Paul's ministry at every turn. Right? So if Paul finds himself in a situation where he has plenty, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say he's a charlatan. Right? He's tricking people into giving their money. And if he finds himself in a situation where he's lacking something, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say he must be disobeying God because God is not blessing him. And so, so he writes for these two reasons to kind of both uh, justify his ministry as people are seeking to discredit him, but at the same time, he's providing this teaching opportunity. And so he is inclined to talk about what he has learned regarding all of the situations that he's going through. He says, I've learned to be content. Now, we've already defined contentedness, but understand where I'm coming from. The word itself, in the original language, it literally means to be self 
self-sufficient. Now, if I'm up here on a Sunday morning and I'm typically talking about the idea of self-sufficiency, I am not talking about it in a positive light. And that's because the lens through which we view self-sufficiency says, um, you know, I need to be able to get enough money in order to maintain a certain standard of living. That's what we mean when we say the word self-sufficiency. I can take care of all of my needs myself. What Paul is saying has nothing to do with a standard of living. Right? What he is saying is, is actually far different from how we understand the concept of self-sufficiency. What he is saying is that he is not reliant on external circumstances to provide his sense of joy and peace and purpose, and identity. He's saying, when he says, I have everything I need, he's essentially saying, with Jesus, I have all that I need to be satisfied. And so whatever else life affords me is just a bonus on top of that. All right, so, so church, the reason I am warning us about discontent is because discontent, at the end of the day, it is dangerous to our souls because it will do two things to us. It will lead us to make enemies of two groups of people. It will lead us first and foremost to make enemies of other people. Because we will blame them for our situation. We will look to them. We will diminish their role. But the other thing that it does is it leads us to make an enemy out of God. Because we look to God and we say, when we are out of people to blame, there is still the one who orchestrates every circumstance. And so he's, he's the only one left. Right, that we can look to and say, you must have created this situation for me. Right, so, so I'm warning us about this because we are inclined to look at other people and look at God and say they didn't hold up their end of the deal. And at the end of the day, discontent reinforces messages that are harmful to your soul and seek to shape you to put your trust in other things besides Jesus alone. Right, so before we explore... Paul's secret of being content because he's going to tell us about it. I want to first for us make sure that we understand how discontent works and the progression that it goes through so that we understand when it is doing something to our souls, what it looks like, and how we can respond to it. So this is the progression of discontent. Discontent starts with what you can imagine. It starts in my mind. So in my mind, I am able to imagine better circumstances, right? So it, I want you to know that it is not wrong to imagine better circumstances, right? It is not wrong. I mean, God has, is the one who has captured our imaginations. He is the one who has, first of all, put in, in us the concept of being able to see things and how they could be different than they currently are, right? So He's the one who teaches us to look at the world and say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. So so there is such a thing as holy discontent. The the Holy Spirit actually uses holy discontent inside of us to produce often the kinds of changes that he is seeking to bring about. But as the Holy Spirit prompts, you know, it's appropriate to take those steps. But At this point, this point where you can imagine a better circumstance, there is a bit of a fork in the road where you can go one of two directions, right? So so the 
the good place to go is to say, okay, I can imagine something better that God wants, and so I'm going to begin taking steps in that direction, and I'm going to take the steps that I can take, recognizing that I am not the one who has primary control over the circumstance, right? I'm going to take a step, and if God opens a door, then I'm going to take another step, and if God opens a door, and if I take another step, I'll fall right off the stage, but you get the idea is that God is the one who orchestrates everything, and so if I can imagine a better circumstance, I'm gonna be faithful to what I can be faithful to, but I'm gonna recognize that he also has a layer of control. The place where we get into trouble, the place where the problem comes in is the second layer of this, the second step, my heart. My heart becomes impatient, right? Impatience seeks in. This is why in the definitions of both content and discontent, I included that little qualifier about right now, right? Because we are talking about what our circumstances are right now. And imagining better circumstances, it does not always start with impatience, but this is what happened. The better thing that you imagine becomes such a focus for you, such a priority, so important for you that it begins to shape your heart into believing that you need it. And so this is where we start to say things like, if I can't have blank, then I can't be happy. This is where people and God start to become enemies, right? They're not doing, or people and people or whatever, like this is where we point the finger and say they're not doing their part to change things for the better. They're, not, they're, they're the ones who are permitting things to stay where they are. They're allowing this present circumstance, the challenge that I'm currently experiencing, they're the ones allowing it to persist. Or we look to God and say, God, can't you see that things can be better than they are? God, how could you keep this from me? Or if only those people would do their job, if only my boss would work together with me, if only she would see the work that I put in, if only he would see things my way. And so what it does is it takes people and it takes God and it makes them into obstacles that are blocking you from your better circumstance that you can imagine. Instead of loving God and loving others, you turn people and God into obstacles. So if we do not create, or sorry, keep our hearts in check, then what happens is that our hearts create issues. Impatience then produces something. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So my words produce complaining and grumbling. Right, so, I mean, remember all the way back in scripture with me. Go back to the book of Job. All the way back in Job, Job gave us this example where almost in an instant, everything that he had, every relationship that, that he had, everything went up in smoke like that. Everything was taken from him. And what does he do? He gives us a testimony. He says, you know what the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And there's something about that. There's something about that uh, kind of a testimony that we would say, blessed be the name of the Lord. This is what happens though. When we allow impatience to have its way with our discontent, we vocalize our lack of blessedness. We vocalize how they're not doing a good job. 
we vocalize how disappointed we are with this situation. We find ourselves talking about the infamous they. You guys know about they. I know a lot about they. (laughs) I know a lot about they. You know, because they don't know what they're doing, right? Uh, they should be doing a better job. You, you avoid attaching names to it because you can keep yourself kind of impersonal, but there is somebody else at the end of your they, right? They should be more thankful for all that I do. Their way of doing things created this circumstance. They're responsible for my sadness. And there are times when I am prone, me personally, I am prone to start complaining about circumstances And I start talking about it, and as I talk about it, I realize that right now, there's no way for this circumstance to be different than it is. Right, like, sometimes, as I'm thinking about it, and I'm letting my words go, and I'm letting my mind roll, and I'm letting my impatience have its way, sometimes, as I'm thinking about it, the Holy Spirit will be gracious to show me, you know what? There's no one to blame, right? That I have no power to change this situation and that actually right now nobody else has any power to change this situation either. And you know what I want to do when the Holy Spirit shows me that? I still really want to complain. I still really want the situation to be different. I really want to vocalize my issue with what's happening. But when I do that, He has shown me there's no one else to blame. There's nothing that you can do to change the circumstance. Who am I complaining against? Right? If there isn't anyone to blame and no one can do anything right now to change it, the Holy Spirit is very patient with me and very gracious to show me you are complaining against me. Right? Because he's the only one left. He's the one who is sovereign over every circumstance. If there's no one to blame and nothing that can change it right now, then your complaint is with the way that I've arranged things. And so, it's worth saying that we could learn a lesson from Job. You know what? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. But I'm going to teach my heart to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Okay, so, so then that's my words There's a step beyond words, though. There are words and there are actions. Now, some of these actions, they include words, but they do go beyond words to a degree. My actions turn into outbursts, manipulation, quiet quitting, which is my new favorite term that has arisen in the the last year or so, quiet quitting, where you can uh, go to your job and fail to show up and not really put in an effort because you're frustrated with something that is in your workplace. You can go and quiet quit. Right? Gossiping, slander. Right? If impatient discontent is allowed to persist in this way, it will eventually start wreaking havoc in your workplace relationships, in your relationships at home, in your relationship with God. Right? Uh, this is where uh, bitterness, if you let bitterness have its way, bitterness defiles many. Right? It comes out of you and then pours out onto other people and then damages the systems in which you are involved. Okay, so that's the danger of discontent. The question that we have to ask is how do we learn to be content? So let's just look back at the passage real quick. Verses, 
verse 12. It says, I know how. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Anybody, so, so for what it's worth, anybody can be content in abundance. Anybody can be content in plenty. You're like, okay, well, yeah, but you have what you need, right? You have the things that you need, right? Of course, Paul, you can do that. But to be content in every circumstance, to be content in being brought low, to be content in being hungry, that is a special skill. So how has Paul learned these things? Well, for what it's worth, the the lesson that he has to give comes in verse 13. But before we explore that lesson, it seems important that we explore what exactly Paul means when he says, by being brought low and by being hungry, because I think we can often underestimate the degree to which he suffered. Like, you know, I can hear somebody saying, like, if I were up here telling you, I have learned the secret to how, of how to be content in many circumstances and how to be brought low and that kind of stuff, you could laugh at me if you compared it to what Paul actually went through. So just uh, walk with me through 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28. In verse 24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. What this means is that he went through five separate Jewish trials where he was unjustly found guilty of breaking the law. And after he was unjustly found guilty, they lashed him 39 times and to to remove the one because the general belief was if you were lashed 40 times, that that would put you to death, that no human being could withstand 40 lashes. And so they gave him 39 lashes. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. So the lashes, they are a punishment in a Jewish court. The rods are a punishment in a Roman court which means three separate times he stood in a Roman court and was unjustly convicted of breaking the law and was beaten. It says, once I was stoned. That means that a Jewish court found him so guilty that they thought he deserved death. That often what they would do is they would take somebody and put them in a pit outside of town and then all the people would go and gather around the pit and they wouldn't grab rocks that are really big, but they wouldn't grab rocks that are really small either. They would grab rocks and they would throw these stones at the person in the pit uh, and they would just keep you know, throwing and throwing and throwing until the stones piled up. Now, Paul survived, which is a miracle, right? But... The reality is their intention was to put him to death. He said, three times I was shipwrecked. That three different times. Okay, so that's all of that stuff I've said so far. That's stuff that other people did, right? But if Paul was shipwrecked three different times, we're talking about the weather, right? Other people didn't do the weather, which means that the Lord himself allowed the ship that he was on to encounter a storm and be washed up three different times. And one of those times, he was left out at sea adrift for one day and one night. That the Lord allowed all of that. Verse 26, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Then he's just like, hey, y'all, this is just the cost of doing business, right? Like every moment, my physical circumstances are in jeopardy. 
because for a person who is called by God to travel on foot and say things that offend people, this is simply what could happen at any time. Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Verse 28, and apart from all of that, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So let me first say that there's not a single thing that I've endured that comes close to that level of being brought low. There's a very good chance that there's nothing that I will endure that will come close to that level of being brought low. And so I think sometimes that we underestimate the suffering of what it was that Paul went through. There is not a word written in his letters that is not birthed out of first-hand experience. Paul knows what it means to have no food and no shelter and no love and no friends and no respect and no reputation and no health. So let's read verses 11 and 12 again. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So let me just ask you a question. Has your contentment been tested? Right, Paul says, I have learned. It carries with it the idea of training, that I have been sitting in a classroom, that somebody has been instructing me as to what it takes to be content. And you know how Paul can confidently say, at this point in his journey, do you know how he can say, I have learned? Because he's gone through it, right? And having come through it, testifying of his confidence in God and his love for neighbor and faithfulness to his calling, he can say, I've learned the secret, right? A host of situations exist that in any other person in this world would have produced uh, resignation and frustration and a change of course, but Paul says that was not the case because I have learned how to be content in every circumstance. So I'm just curious, what is this secret? What has he learned? How is it possible that he has endured so much and continue to say, yeah, I'm okay? Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, context really matters. Uh, This is the Christian coffee cup verse, right? We sip our coffee in our uh, nice little living room with our legs crossed and read our paper and uh, have that little verse that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But this is, you know, the, the reality of what Paul is talking about is I have been through everything that I've been through only because of Christ, right? It doesn't, this isn't to say that, like, if you just have enough faith in Jesus, you can fly, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's saying that I have learned to find my full satisfaction in Jesus so that even when I have nothing, even when nothing is the way that it's supposed to be, I know, have, I know that I have more than I could ever possibly deserve. So you notice, like, this is crazy. 
and I think it's proper timing for the time and place that we live in. So many of the worship songs written in our time today, like, I don't know if the Lord is just trying to really clarify and hone in a message for us. They are focused around being satisfied in Jesus. That is like what they are trying to get at. Why? Because we have access to so much stuff and so much opportunity that we are easily given over to the thought that things should be like we can make them. And things should be like the way we think they should. And we need to sing. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. We need to sing that. Because we need to remind ourselves. We need to sing, Christ is enough for me. Because we need to remind our souls that that is where our hope is. To combat the lie that we can buy, somehow buy enough stuff to make ourselves happy and content. We need to sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. Because you will go through circumstances where you can envision things being better. And you will be tempted to make them better on your terms. And you need to believe that true and genuine satisfaction does not come from your circumstances. Your circumstances cannot produce that for you. Genuine satisfaction for your soul comes first and foremost from the fact that at one time you were alienated from your creator. But he went through every means necessary to make it possible to extend to you an invitation to receive in him every spiritual blessing that he has to offer. And the circumstances that bring you low, they provide you an opportunity to remember and rest in the only true source of satisfaction. And that is rest that your soul needs. So what? So what? Number one, identify and put away the symptoms of discontent. Okay, so the key symptoms of discontent, there are three. Number one, they're, they all, they're all C's, so it'll be easy to remember. Number one, complaining. I just want to read for you this passage. Jude 14 through 16. It says, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. He's trying to make a point here, I think. Uh, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And then the first word that he says, first two words, those ungodly are grumblers and malcontents. First two words that he uses. Right, the biblical authors are out to let you know a certain concept about how God thinks about things, where God sees things starting. You look at God's response to complaining in most of scripture, and complaining is a grievous sin, right? The biblical authors want you to know that grumbling and complaining are seen as ungodly and evil because from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
Second thing, second piece to put away is comparison. James 3.16 says this, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Right, so when I'm looking at what they have, right, this is covetousness. This is why it was in the Ten Commandments, right? I look at what they have. I look at the life they live. I look at their circumstances, and I say, I want those circumstances. Nay, I deserve those circumstances. You know what that does to your heart? It turns that person into an enemy, right? So that you would get into this place where you would actually create disorder, where you would be able to observe vile practices happening in your circles. And then the third piece to put away is contempt. James 4.2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The problem is your heart, right? You have turned somebody into an enemy because you desire and you do not have, right? So discontentment, it typically has a trajectory, and what James has done for us is he has described this trajectory. It begins with a heart that sees what God has withheld above the gifts that he has given. And so it is an invitation then to say, let's look at God and his gifts. And let's not worry so much about the things that he has withheld. Because unchecked, you know what the human heart is really good at doing? It's really good at finding its way to what it wants. Okay, so that's the first piece. And then the second, so what is this? The secret to contentment is no longer a secret. If you have not trusted in Jesus, there is no contentment without him. Now, in eternity, whatever, like whatever you call it, every, everything that we pursue, everything that we hold out from Christ for, that, that, like, that thing that we think we're going to get or that thing we think we deserve or that thing that we think should be ours, we're believing a lie that somehow that thing is better for us than Jesus is. And the invitation to us is to see how good Jesus is, how much he is giving us that we do not deserve, how much of a blessing he has sought to be to us, how much he has uh, loved us and sought to extend to us relationship with himself, even though the things that we have wrought are death and destruction. So with everything you lack, that was an invitation to trust in Christ, and then I would tell you, with everything that you lack, that you take all that you lack and you choose to give God glory and you choose to be grateful. I just want to remind us of last week. Last week, Paul said to us to put things into practice. Right? There are practices of gratitude and thankfulness and prayer that produce peace that expels anxiety. Right? And apparently, in the same line of thinking, Paul is able to say, you know, they also produce contentment that dispels a grumbling heart. And they are learned through practice, right, through employment of these things. So if you are in Christ, the, the, the kind of reminder that is given to us is that his divine power has given us everything we need required for life and godliness. Right? We have in Christ right now everything that we need. We have the blood of Christ to cover our past failures, 
We have the spirit of Christ to empower us to lift Christ up highest in our heart. So Renovation Church, the invitation to you is to practice these things to the glory of God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I know that there is a a sense of heaviness as we experience the conviction of your spirit because we are so easily given over to discontent. First of all, because of our hearts and second of all, because we live in a world that reinforces it inside of us. And so, Lord, there is extreme need for you to bring health and healing and wholeness in this place where our hearts are so given over to sickness. And so, Holy Spirit, the thing that I want to ask of you is would you bring health and wholeness and healing? And would you compel our perspective? Would you compel us with the person of Jesus? Would you compel us with the gifts that have been extended to us in Jesus? We so often struggle to note those things or believe those things or remember those things, but it is in the realizing how much we have been given that we can learn to be content in any circumstance. Lord, I also know that there are people in this room who have been taught the lesson of contentment through series upon series upon series of hard circumstances. And Lord, for them, I would pray that you would continue to enable them to endure and persevere in upholding and honoring and being thankful for and joyful in Christ, regardless of their circumstances. Lord, and teach those of us who have not yet gone through the worst of what we have to go through. Teach those of us who have not yet dealt with the things that so easily might create discontentment inside of us. Lord, teach us to learn from those who have gone before us that we might learn the same secret of finding contentment in Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.